This morning I'd like to tell you the life story of Helen Kreps. Her story is of interest to us in part because she was a member of the old Unitarian Church of Palo Alto, which existed from 1905 to 1934. But more importantly, because her experiences in that church led her to an unusual career path for a woman of her day. At the time of her death, she had almost completed her studies to become a Unitarian minister, which was a very unusual career path for a woman of her generation. Then after I tell you her life story, I'd like to reflect a little bit on what it meant for her to be a feminist and what we can take away from her life example. Helen grew up in a military family and had a sometimes adventurous sounding life. Her mother, Amelia, Helen Amelia Thompson, whose early life is obscure, married Jacob Kreps, a graduate of West Point and a career military officer. They married in January 1891 in Meadville, Pennsylvania. The officiant was an Episcopalian minister. Jacob was then serving with the 22nd Regiment uh, on the Upper Great Plains, mostly in North Dakota and Montana, and he moved his wife to, uh, out to live in army forts in a land that was not long from being recently settled by European Americans. Jacob and Helen's first child, Nora Elizabeth Kreps, was born in North Dakota in July 1893, and their second child, the subject of this sermon, Helen Catherine Kreps, was born October 17th 1894 at Fort Pembina, North Dakota. Fort Pembina on the Red River Valley in North Dakota was then in the process of being abandoned by the War Department and there were very few soldiers stationed there. The abandonment of Fort Pembina came to a dramatic conclusion in May 1895 when fire broke out and burned many of the buildings, though fortunately not the officers' quarters where the Kreps family lived but it surely must have been a terrifying situation for a family with two children under the age of two. By 1896, Jacob's regiment had moved to newly built Fort Crook, Nebraska, where he became the regimental quartermaster. Fort Crook was the very model of a modern army base. An 1896 newspaper described it thus. Fort Crook is conceded to be the finest and most conveniently arranged post in the United States Army. The trees, which are young and now afford to, sh afford to shave and serve only slightly to relieve the monotony of the grounds under fostering care, will grow rapidly. On the western side of the parade ground and separated from it only by a stretch of lawn and driveway is the row of line officers' quarters, 12 buildings in all, and the center of this row is to be the commandant's quarters. Ten of these buildings are exact duplicates and intended for married officers. There are mantles in parlors, sitting rooms, and in the bedrooms upstairs, bathrooms with hot and cold running water, steam heat in all of them, and the entire finish of the rooms on the first floor is in hardwood, and it was in these surroundings that Helen passed her early childhood. But the family did continue to move frequently, as is often the case with military families. After two years in Fort Crook, 
1898, Jacob's regiment was posted to the Philippines. Jacob left behind a pregnant wife. Their third and youngest child, Jack Kreps, was born July 1898. By 1900, the three Kreps children were living with their mother in Coronado City, California, presumably to be near the port in San Diego, a major sea link to the Philippines. By 1902, the family was back at Fort Crook, and Jacob remained there until 1903 when he moved the family to Pittsburgh. Helen and her sisters were part, uh, part of a wedding party for their uncle's wedding in Pittsburgh. And then in 1906, the family moved again, this time to Northern California. Jacob rejoined his regiment at Fort McDowell on Angel Island near San Francisco, and there the entire family experienced the great earthquake of 1906. Jacob's battalion was in downtown San Francisco the morning of the earthquake, and he participated in relief efforts in the weeks thereafter. We have to wonder what Helen and her siblings thought of the earthquake. But really, we know nothing of Helen except the fact that she had been a part of a wedding before the age of 10. But as she became older, she begins to emerge as a person in her own right. In June 1908, when Helen was 13, the family moved to Nome, Alaska, where Jacob took command of Fort Davis. Helen attended Nome High School. While she was in high school, she wrote an essay uh, about the Eskimos, the indigenous people living near Nome. Although Helen called them simple and thoughtless and dull in intellect, she also said they were an honest, affectionate people who did not know what theft was until they met people of European descent. So her racial stereotyping is typical of her time, but she was at least willing to acknowledge that there were ways in which the indigenous people were superior to European Americans. Nora and Helen both graduated from Nome High School in 1910. Jacob then had to go with his regiment to Kansas. But Helen and Nora and their mother moved here to Palo Alto so the girls could attend Stanford University. However, when they arrived in Palo Alto, Helen and Norma found that they were not going to be allowed to enter Stanford that fall, as Helen wrote to a in a letter to a friend in Nome. Well, Bob, she said, we aren't in Stanford after all, though we hope to enter there this semester. The cause, briefly, is that they wouldn't accredit Nome High School. Consequently, we have to graduate again from high school here before we will be allowed to go to Stanford. It was a terrible disappointment to us. But so you can see for yourself that they do not teach up to the standard methods in Nome. In this letter, 16-year-old Helen goes beyond her personal disappointment at not getting into Stanford to critique the educational methods of her Nome High School. Staying in Palo Alto during the succeeding academic year, the girls enrolled in Palo Alto High School to get their diploma from an accredited school. While at Palo Alto High School, Helen entered an essay competition sponsored by the Women's Christian Temperance Union, a progressive social movement of the day, and she won second prize with her essay, Alcohol and the Laborer. Beginning in the fall of 1910, Helen attended the Unitarian Church of Palo Alto. At this time, Florence Buck 
one of the few women ministers of her day, was filling the pulpit for Reverend Clarence Reed, who was on sabbatical. Helen was deeply influenced both by Unitarianism and by seeing a woman in the pulpit. One suspects that Helen was also inspired by other strong women in that old Unitarian Church of Palo Alto. Many of the Unitarian women in Palo Alto were active in the successful 1911 campaign for women's suffrage in California. There were, for example, Alice Locke Park, an early feminist who was active in both the state and national women's suffrage league. Annie Corbett, a native of Nantucket Island who was president of the Santa Clara County Equal Suffrage Association. Emily Carnes Dixon, an heiress and president of the Palo Alto uh, Suffrage League. And Helen Sutliff, a career librarian at Stanford who was active in the suffrage movement. Perhaps Helen, the daughter of a career military officer, didn't completely agree with Alice Parks's pacifist views, but certainly any one of these early feminists, early Unitarian feminists, would have served as powerful role models for a bright 16-year-old girl. Helen and her sister finally entered Stanford in the 1911-1912 academic year. Their father now in New Mexico, they stayed with their mother in Palo Alto. At Stanford, Helen majored in German. She participated in the summer 1914 session of the Marine Biological Laboratory, was elected president of the Stanford English Club, and worked as a filing clerk in the library, probably working with Helen Sutliff from the Unitarian Church. She and members of her sorority, Delta Delta Delta, hosted a Christmas party for the poor children of Mayfield. She was elected to Phi Beta Kappa, was vice president of the English club, and was elected a member of the press club. And then she graduated from Stanford in 1915 with high honors. After graduation, Helen stayed in Palo Alto and worked in the Stanford library as a cataloger during the next academic year. Her father had retired from the U.S. Army in 1914, so she was living in Palo Alto with her father, mother, and sister. Her brother Jack was in a boarding school in, nearby in Los Gatos. And during the 1915-1916 academic year, Helen became more deeply involved with the Unitarian Church of Palo Alto, although it looks like none of the rest of her family did. She taught the first and second graders in the Sunday school at the Unitarian Church. She also made regular financial contributions and presumably she became a member of the church, though the membership records are now lost. Perhaps during this year after graduating from Stanford, Helen was deciding what to do with her life. And in the fall of 1916, she took a bold step. She entered the Pacific Unitarian School for the Ministry. This was a bold step because at that time, Helen was the only woman in the state of California who had entered a theological school. She explained to a meeting of Unitarians in October why she decided to go against the societal expectations for women in order to become a minister. The church today, she said, must make it worthwhile for its members to attend. It must hold forth ideals and principles which appeal to the modern conscience. It must clothe the fundamental truths and beauties of religions in up-to-date raiment. P. 
People cannot now be expected to attend services merely because their parents did. They must go because they get something which makes life richer or better. I think a woman in the ministry can exert a powerful influence not only on members of her sex, but on the ent entire congregation. But she must be mentally equipped. Well, clearly, Helen was mentally equipped for Unitarian ministry given her distinguished career and her distinguished degree from Stanford. But she was more than mentally equipped. Earl Morse Wilbur, the president of the school, commented on Helen's exceptional character. He said, quiet and modest and bearing though she was, never asserting herself or her views, yet we instinctively felt that in her there was depth and breadth of character. And as she moved about among us, she won a respect and exerted an influence that belonged to few people. I remember saying to myself at the end of her first chapel service, in which the depth and sincerity of her religious nature were revealed, that I should count myself happy if she might someday be my minister, and those who were present at the devotional service which she conducted at the Unitarian Conference in Berkeley last spring will not soon forget the impression she then made. In spite of her obvious gifts for Unitarian ministry, Helen felt she had to continue to explain her reasons for entering the ministry. In the summer of 1917, she addressed the Associate Alliance of Northern California, the umbrella organization for Unitarian women's groups in the region, saying provocatively that she thought, she thought it strange that there were so few women in the pulpit, especially considering that the women who were in the Unitarian ministry had been so successful. Helen mentioned Reverend Florence Buck, as one such successful woman minister. Helen went on to point out that women were doing great work in the current war effort and that, quote, woman's entrance into the pulpit would supply just the touch needed to fill to completeness her work for the goodness of humanity. What Helen was telling her audience was that women could offer a great deal more in service to humanity than merely serving as wives and mothers. In her second year in graduate school, the 1917 to 1918 academic year, Helen and her friend Julia Budlong, a classmate of hers also preparing for Unitarian ministry, did their part for the war effort by taking a class in Red Cross nursing at the University of California at Berkeley. By this time, Helen, Helen's brother Jack was fighting in the trenches in Europe, and her father had been recalled to duty out of retirement to serve on the home front. So the de decision to take a class in nursing was almost inevitable, but it was also, to, uh, also proved to be fateful for Helen. During the summer of 1918, before her third and final year of theological school, Helen supplied the pulpit of All Souls Unitarian Church in Santa Cruz. One sermon title has survived. On June 1st, 1918, she spoke on the moral aims of the war. 
perhaps a natural topic for a child of a retired major of the U.S. Army who was also studying for ministry. She returned to the Unitarian School for the Ministry in the fall, and she was well on her way to receiving her degree summa cum laude and was looking forward to be ordained as a Unitarian minister in June of 1919. But then the worldwide influenza epidemic struck the Bay Area in the fall of 1918. By October, influenza had taken hold on the Berkeley campus. More than 400 students were ill. Stiles Hall, Hearst Hall, and Harmon Gym had been converted into temporary infirmaries. Helen Kreps and her classmate Julia Budlong, who were both cross-registered in the theological school and at Berkeley, responded to a call for volunteer nurses at Berkeley. When the emergency call came for nurses, Earl Morse Wilbur later wrote, to care for the hundreds of victims on campus, they both volunteered without a moment's hesitation. It was expected that the trouble would be over and that they would return to work within two weeks. Instead, they paid as dearly for their patriotic service as many soldiers have done. Both were soon stricken with influenza. Helen's case proved to be the more severe of the two. She developed pneumonia and remained ill for months. She was moved to the military hospital in San Francisco to receive treatment there. Her health slowly began to improve, and there was hope that after a long recovery period, she would be able to return to her studies in the autumn of 1919. But while still in a weakened state, Helen contracted diphtheria and died on February 23, 1919 at Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco. And she was buried in the San Francisco National Cemetery, not far from where her father and mother were later buried. In a moment, I will talk about Helen Krebs's feminism, but given that we're in the midst of this COVID-19 pandemic that's so similar to the 1918 influenza epidemic, I feel I should speak for just a moment on the ethics of how societies respond to pandemics. Helen Krebs's story brings into sharp focus the human cost of pandemics. How do we balance the deaths of people like Helen Krebs against the damage, the clear damage that's done by societal restrictions intended to prevent the spread of disease? How do we balance individual suffering and death against the economic costs of pandemic control? I don't have an answer to this ethical balancing act. And in fact, I'm troubled by those who claim that they do have some kind of final answer. It is quite clear to me that some form of social restrictions are needed to prevent uncontrolled spread of disease. Beyond that, we also know that people sink into poverty when such social restrictions prevent them from working. And even though economists tell us that economic recovery is faster where social restrictions are imposed, nevertheless, it's a balancing act. We also know that the current shelter-in-place order is making things worse for people who are suffering from domestic violence, mental illness, and so on. In such an impossible situation, there can be no final definitive answer except to always try to strive for the greater good of all humanity.
so much for pandemics. Given what we know of her mind and character, I do think that Helen Kreps might have had some interesting comments on this ethical question. But rather than speculate about that, let's turn to Helen Kreps's feminism, about which we do know something. And the first thing that strikes me about Helen Kreps is this. She exemplifies the best aspects of both the ministry and of military culture. And that is a strong call to duty. Why did she take a nursing class when she was obviously all too busy with her studies? She felt a call to duty. Her father had come out of retirement to help with the, with the war effort. Her brother was fighting in the trenches in Europe. Her mother was managing director of the Red Cross chapter in Palo Alto. The least that Helen could do was to train as a nurse. Why did Helen drop her studies and volunteer to be a nurse at the university infirmary? She felt called to the duty of using her training to help her fellow human beings. For most people today, duty has become less important than individual freedom. We see this, in fact, when people refuse to follow COVID-19 social restrictions, they're placing their individual freedom before their duty to all humanity. But for Helen Kreps, duty was clearly very important. She felt the call of duty, and that call of duty led her to become a feminist. She was not a feminist because she longed for individual freedom, although she might have longed for individual freedom. Instead, she told an audience of women Unitarians the reason she was preparing to be a woman minister was because she wanted to use her gifts to work for the goodness of humanity. This may sound old-fashioned. Today, we are more likely to hear people justifying feminism on grounds of personal freedom, on grounds that all persons have certain rights which they must be allowed to exercise. Indeed, the principles and purposes of our Unitarian Universalist Association begin by asserting not a call to duty, but the inherent worth and dignity of each person. Yet Helen Kreps makes the point that humanity needs the skills and talents, not just of men, but of every gender. So she decided to become a Unitarian minister in order to use her intellectual gifts and to use her depth and breadth of character to bring goodness to all humanity. Today, when we are justifying equality for women, or equality for non-white people, or equality for non-heterosexual people, or equality for poor and working class people, we are most likely to talk about freedom and individual rights. And freedom and individual rights are certainly critically important. But the life of Helen Kreps shows us another, perhaps larger possibility. The reason we fight for equality is not just to achieve freedom for individuals, but more importantly, that equality can contribute to the greater goodness of all humanity. I do wonder what Helen Kreps would have accomplished if she had not died of influenza. I think she would have continued to have been inspired by her ideal of duty to humanity. Even though the Unitarian men, who were then running the American Unitarian Association, essentially did away with jobs for women ministers through most of the 20th century, 
Helen Kreps was particularly brilliant and gifted, and I think that she, like her mentor Florence Buck, would have found a way to influence Unitarianism for the better. She would have been another voice reminding us that our religion does not exist just to serve our individuality, but that we must also exist to strive for the greater goodness of all humanity.